Section 5 of Louis Pasteur by Albert Keim and Louis Lumet. Translated by Frederick Tabor Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3 On the Road to Fame, Part 2. But these delicate experiments and lofty speculations did not make Pasteur forget that he was administrator of the Ecole Normale as well as director of scientific studies. And never did a man take his duties more seriously than he, even when they were a burden and a constraint. He applied himself to everything that he undertook with the same degree of attention and conscientiousness, and nothing seemed to him too trivial to be worthy of supervision and painstaking. Accordingly, he took every pains to give a perfect administration to the great school that he still loved as well as he had done in boyhood when it had appeared to him as the far-off goal of his highest hopes. He concerned himself about the health of the students and the hygiene of the locality, and even the smallest details were objects of his solicitude, such as airing a classroom or sanding a court. Even the scientific side of his mind found employment in the administrative role. For instance, when he undertook comparative calculations as to the number of ounces of meat furnished for each meal to the students at the Normale and the Polytechnique. This anxiety to be a good administrator in no wise interfered with his researches. He accepted the additional burden without complaint, and his scientific activity was in no wise retarded in the same manner that crystals led him to fermentations. It was these latter which were destined to lead him to studies which seemed to overstep the boundary of science and to enter the metaphysical domain of the origins of life, the solution of which had hitherto been the concern of philosophers rather than scientists. When Pasteur saw, under the lens of a microscope, cells of a yeast conducting themselves like living organisms, when he saw the vibrions moving, growing, and dying, he straightway asked himself, where these yeasts and these vibrions come from? Are they born spontaneously from matter in a state of decomposition, or is it not more likely that in accordance with the general laws of life they are produced by germs? This was, in short, the question of spontaneous generation, which had so long been combated and which he now undertook to solve. Pasteur believed that nothing is self-creative, but this was something which had to be proved, and he succeeded in proving it victoriously in the full heat of battle and in spite of the attacks and insults of those who championed the opposite doctrine. His friends, with Billot at their head, tried to turn him aside from these researches which they judged useless and vain. But Pasteur, strong in his conviction, and with that dogged will which never turned back from any obstacle, as long as he was sure that he had grasped the truth, disregarded the advice of his elders and plunged into experiments that bristled with difficulties. From the most remote antiquity, spontaneous generation had been accepted, and it is well known that the ancients believed that eels were born from the slime of river banks, and that it did not seem to them impossible that bees should issue from the decomposing entrails of a bull. 
Without going quite so far back, we find that the great naturalist Buffon supported the theory of spontaneous generation, but the first experiments to prove its truth were made by an Irishman, Needham, in the 18th century. Enclosing putrefying matter in a vessel which he sealed hermetically and heating the whole apparatus in hot ashes in order to destroy all living germs, he allowed the vessel to become cold, and after the lapse of several days he found that it contained animalcula. This went to prove that spontaneous generation had taken place. Spallanzani repeated these experiments, and after heating the closed vessel to a higher degree, observed that no animalcula afterwards developed. Needham rejoined that by using too high a degree of heat, he had killed the vegetative force from which creation proceeded. None of these experiments was conclusive, and although they were repeated by Gay-Lussac, Schulze, and Schwann, their results remained uncertain and often contradictory. When Pasteur intervened, the theory of spontaneous generation was supported by Pouchet, and it may be said that it was accepted by a considerable number of scientists. It is true, however, that no decisive evidence had been offered either for or against the theory. It was at this moment that Pasteur revealed himself not only as a man of daring and profound thought, but as the most careful and experienced of operators. To those who believed in spontaneous generation, he said, everything comes from a germ, and even these animalcula, which seem to you to have been born spontaneously in the infusions in which they develop, come quite simply from germs and spores which are floating in the air. You have conducted your experiments badly. I will begin them over again, and I will prove to you that the substances which you regard as subject to decay are not so when they are rigorously sheltered from the air. Pasteur began his experiments at the end of 1859, and he pursued them in the midst of the din of battle, for his adversaries disputed his conclusions in advance. The contest lasted for more than four years, with attacks, counterattacks, and violent battles, but finally the victory remained with Pasteur, without even his most bitter enemies venturing to dispute him further. Assailing his problem at its foundations, he proved the actual existence of germs and spores in the atmosphere. Then he conceived of a distribution of glass globes, which would enable him to demonstrate by experiment what he had already maintained against the supporters of spontaneous generation. Pasteur declared that germs are unevenly distributed in the atmosphere, and that the air of high mountain tops contains either few or none at all. Pouchet and Joly, on the contrary, contended that air by its own nature could cause spontaneous generation in any and every locality. Both parties made experiments in their own behalf, and each experiment gave different results. These polemics spread beyond scientific circles to the daily press, and since the question of religion was involved, the public took sides for the one party or the other, according to their individual opinions, the results obtained by Pasteur being regarded as conforming with the biblical account of the creation, while those of Pouchet seemed to invalidate and contradict it. For his first demonstration, Pasteur employed globes with a curving neck, 
into which he introduced an infusion liable to putrefy either of hay or of malt, which had been brought to the boiling point in order to destroy whatever germs it might contain. And having done this, he left the globes exposed to the open air. No disturbances took place in the infusion, but if by tipping the globes he brought the liquid into contact with the walls of the curved neck, after a longer or shorter time the infusion would begin to swarm with life, thus furnishing a double proof first that pure air has no effect upon liquids subject to putrefaction, and secondly, that it was the germs and spores heavier than the air which had been deposited in the curved neck that gave birth to the infusoria popularly attributed to spontaneous generation. On the other side, Pouchet declared that the air being everywhere the same had the power, no matter where it was gathered, of causing the creation of vibrions through its action upon liquids subject to putrefaction, while Pasteur continued to maintain that germs and spores were unequally distributed in the atmosphere, and that if the air were taken from the mountain tops, it was impossible that it should disturb the liquids brought into contact with it, since there would be a complete absence of germs and spores. The experiments which Pasteur made, as simple as they are conclusive, to demonstrate the truth of his conception, have remained historic. It was through the aid of globes with a straight neck finely drawn out that he ultimately succeeded, and this is the way that he achieved his proof, thanks to his practical qualities as an experimenter of extreme caution who never left anything to chance. After having half-filled his globes with some alterable liquid, such as an infusion of brewer's yeast, Pasteur brought it to the boiling point, and when the steam had driven out all the air, he quickly closed the point of the finely drawn-out neck by means of a blowpipe. The globes thus prepared, the liquid being contained in an almost absolute vacuum, were transported to various different localities and then opened with infinite precautions. The fine point of the neck was broken with pincers previously heated in a flame, the air re-entering the globes, which were immediately sealed again and placed in ovens where they were subjected to a temperature of 86 degrees Fahrenheit. The liquid behaved differently according to the locality from which the air had been obtained, the fermentation being very rapid if it had come from a neighborhood where there was much dust, much slower when it was taken, for instance, from the cellar of the observatory, and in some cases there was no alteration at all. In spite of these results, Pasteur's experiments continued to be disputed. He resolved to undertake a scientific campaign against which his adversaries should no longer be able to stand out. Armed with 63 globes, he set forth in September 1860 for the mountain heights of the Alps. He halted first at Arbois, where he took some specimens of air. Then, from Mount Puget, he proceeded to Chamonix, and there he opened some of his globes on the Mer de Glace. There, in that pure air, far from human crowds, germs and spores ought either not to exist or else to be very rare. The results proved that he was right. Out of twenty globes opened in the mountain heights, nineteen proved sterile, while in the case of those into which air was admitted at lower levels, 
the proportion of sterile ones out of the same number fell off to 15 and to 12. The proof was decisive. But Pouchet, his bitterest opponent, having repeated the same experiments, only with a less degree of care, arrived at different results and denied the value of Pasteur's demonstrations. He also had obtained air from various localities, even from Sicily, and there, just as elsewhere, he had found it fertile and ready to act upon liquids capable of putrefying. The conflict assumed epic proportions. The sessions of the Academy of Sciences caught the echoes of it, each theory having its partisans and each experimenter his enemies. Pasteur, however, ended by convincing the learned assemblage, which, in 1862, awarded him a prize for his memorandum on organic corpuscles existing in the atmosphere. Alone or almost alone, Pouchet, Joly, and Musée refused to lay down arms and continued to carry on an active war. In order to force them to surrender, Pasteur requested the Academy of Sciences to name a commission to judge between him and his adversaries, each party having required to repeat his experiments in the presence of the commissioners chosen. Pouchet, Joly, and Musée accepted, but on the day appointed for the tests, they announced that they had failed, while Pasteur, accompanied by Duclos, arrived, bringing his globes and his liquids with him. The experiment was a success, and Ballon recorded in the name of the commission the conclusive results in the compte-rendu de l'Académie des Sciences. After a hard campaign of several years, Pasteur was at last triumphant. This question of spontaneous generation aroused an interest outside of the men of science. It had called attention to the mysterious world of infinitely little things, and people were eager to gather around the microscope in order to see these redoubtable organisms, the full extent of whose power was as yet unknown. Pasteur had obtained the concession of a suite of five rooms in the École Normale to be used as a laboratory. Having thus been enabled to quit his garret, he began to receive illustrious visitors, statesmen, society women, personages of high standing at court, all of whom came to beg him to initiate them into the secrets which he had discovered and of which he seemed to be the sole guardian. During his researches in spontaneous generation, Pasteur had received from the Academy of Sciences in 1860 the Prize for Experimental Physiology, and in 1861 he had for a second time presented himself as a candidate in the section of botany. He was supported by his faithful friend Biot, but nevertheless he obtained only 24 votes. He was not destined to be elected until the 8th of December 1862, with a majority of 36 out of a total of 60 votes to the section of mineralogy where he succeeded Sinarmont. Pasteur was now celebrated, acclaimed by some and combated by others, who were unable to comprehend the utterly new order of his genius. Napoleon III expressed his desire to meet him, and it was his first master, Dumas, the one who had formerly caused Pasteur such keen emotion by his lectures on chemistry at the Sorbonne, who presented him to the emperor at the Tuileries in March 1863. Pasteur delighted Napoleon III by his serious and simple manner. 
he explained his ideas regarding the scientific problems on which he was engaged, and confessed to the emperor that his most secret ambition was to study contagious diseases in order to find a cure for all humanity. End of section 5